Good morning. Amen. It's a wonderful morning as we ask the Lord to open our eyes and we acknowledge we are here to worship. Praise the Lord. We want to welcome all those by way of television this morning and radio and other means of communication. We trust that we, as we come into um, at a wonderful Sunday school class, we all, always encourage you to support our Sunday school class by your presence and your prayers and, and as you support our all of it, United Methodist Church and, and J-Hop and, and the gathering, we all work together and together we, we exist together. Our opening hymn is for the beauty of the earth to the honor and glory of the birthday of Janet Peterson. Red hymnals number 55 verses 1 through 2 verses 4 through 5 please. Then our praise song, Thou Art Worthy, read praise number 74, as we go into prayer and intercession, and as we remember our scripture this morning, as taken from Luke's Gospel, 18th chapter, verses 9 through 14.
Shall we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we come unto you, our most heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for thou art worthy. We um, pause and reflect upon the, the excellence of your mercy towards us. We are reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 and 16 through 18, we have this treasure in earthly vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in us the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in us and in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward person is perishing, yet the inward person is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us far more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory which we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We thank you for that word in 2 Corinthians, and we ask your blessing upon our worship service today. We pray for J-Hop, and we pray for the gathering, each alone we would be unable to exist, but in our mutuality and our, our ability to share facilities, J-Hop is existing, the gathering is existing and we are existing and we thank you for that coexistence. It's like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three, which is one as we worship. And with all the last days, economic and political and military convergences, that's convergence on the world, with all the prophetic signs flooding our newspapers and news feeds on, on an hourly basis. With the impending collapse of Western civilization being a mere catechism away from happening. With everything prophetic happening everywhere, with all at once going on the one nagging question that keeps rolling around the back of our brains. Who's going to take care of, of what's going on? And yet we are in the moments of the last days and I'm not sweating or not feeling caged in. Nevertheless, the question of whether we should sweat the the things that are going is something an increasing number of watchers are faced with. Is that how close we are to the end? It appears in my mind right now there are at least 19, 19 existential threats that are currently hanging over our collective heads like a, like a giant boulder teetering on the edge of a cliff on the San Andreas fault line. 
Crazy enough, none of these threats include COVID or the transgendered bathroom rights or the man-made climate change. However, for the sake of argument, we pray for these threats. The impending nuclear war with Russia, the nuclear war with Russia and China and Red North Korea, and the dirty bombs detonated in major cities. The EMP attack by the aforementioned, the collapse of the US dollar, the collapse of the Chinese yen, and a major flash flag event triggering an armed response, followed by a martial law declaration. The inevitability of civil war following the said martial law declaration, a serious bioengineered pandemic with over 10% infection fatality rate. This massive cyber attack shutting down the 16 critical vulnerable points in the United States. Thanks to Joe for spilling the beans. For the global famine, for the digital pandemic, cyber virus shutting down everything. For the massive solar storm triggering EMP-like effects. The Yellowstone situation, the supervolcano erupting. Massive earthquakes triggering a ripple effect across numerous fault lines. For the AI, the AI, the artificial intelligence ex epidemic explosion attempting to reenact the Terminators, Skynet. And Kern, the CERN internationality for unintentional open something up. This so-called massive me meteor strike hitting the earth and alien invasions or some other extraterrestrial events. And I'm sure there are many other black swam events out there that are equally serious threats that we don't know about, but these were just some of those things I could think of about on the top of my head. Each one of these in it of itself are extremely serious threats that have the potential to spin up in life as we know it. Incredibly, there are also the very things that our government is not taking seriously at present. Our current government seems more concerned with making our military more inclusive than they are on whether the Chinese or Russians have doubled the size of their Navy or successfully tested, fired, and used hypersonic missiles. It appears that if our government would spend a fraction of its time and energy on any one of these 19 they do with the ridiculous global cooling or global warming or climate change threat, I, I would feel a little better. It would mean that somewhere up there in the, the bowels of the government, adults are involved instead. We have this never-ending parade of environmentalists and liberals and doomsday prophets with predictions, tracking records, worse. And these global ut utopians are enthusiastically willing to suicide the American economy and subsequently the world's because supposedly years from now, the ocean temperatures might rise one half of one degree. We find that the environmentalist fear-mongering has been at a fever pitch for at least the last 10 years and this forthcoming catastrophic apparently has former president Leo so upset by the possibility of rising sea level that he sacrificially bought some $12 million house at 
Martha's Vineyard on the coast. As we mourn the events of our time, Lord, we trust in your word. We ask, O oh Lord, your blessing upon our scripture, our prayers, our presence, the interpretation of the times that we live in, as you've taught us to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. If you're viewing by way of television or listening to us by way of radio or YouTube or the other means of communication, our scripture lesson is taken from Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following through 14. We refer to it the, as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable, a parable to some who trusted in themselves. And a key um, to this passage is trusting in yourself rather than in God. That they were righteous and that they regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. You can imagine this. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, those thieves, those rogues, those adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I go without food to 24-hour periods. I give a tenth, 10% 10 of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Can you say those words with me today? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Good morning, brothers and sisters. The first thing we should realize about our scripture is who Jesus was addressing. His audience thought they were above everybody else, and had a self-imposed righteousness. Realize this righteousness was self-imposed. It did not come from above, from Father God. These people looked down on others as inferior to them and considered themselves holier. Two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee prayed to God and thanked him that he had made him so much better than others. Although this is bad enough, consider how offensive it is to God to brag about how great you are. I, I can't even wrap my head around that one. He mentioned individual sins, probably most of which he had been guilty of, and said he was even better than the person next to him, the tax collector. His statements to God began with the word, I. And the Pharisee's prayer was primarily to and for himself. He asked nothing from God because he thought he, he had all he needed on earth. An accurate commentary about this revolting state of the Pharisee can be read in Romans chapter 10, verse 3. It says, 
for being ignorant in righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They looked upon themselves to establish righteousness and dismissed how God made them and wanted them to be. They knew who they were compared to tax collectors, but they missed the point, the most important point of all. They skipped over who they were supposed to be to God according to their faith in Jesus Christ. The tax collector approached God so humbly he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven when he prayed. He beat his chest. This is a sign of extreme anguish in that culture. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognized his position when compared to God's and honestly addressed God with his inferior and humble position. The Bible tells us that only one of these two men went home justified towards God. The last verse, verse 14 says, for everyone that exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to bring up the gravity of how pride is absolutely in opposition and repulsive to God. Think about it. You're going to show pride to God who created you, who made everything? That is the very sin that got the archangel, Satan, cast out from heaven to spend eternity in hell. Pride. He said on Thor himself that, oh, I could do this. No, he couldn't. No, he's paying the eternal price. His treacherous and dangerous, the Pharisees' treacherous and dangerous position putting yourselves above the other of God's created beings, men and women. It's terrible. It's flat out offensive and repulsive to God. Every war, I thought about it. So I was in two of them. As well, Randy. And probably some of you. But every war that has ever been waged in mankind started with that. Pride. Oh, we're better than you, so we'll have to get rid of you. Or no, that land is mine. You don't, I don't want you on my land. Jesus Christ scored all of us a victory in this petty thinking. His victory was for us inside, spiritually, not physically. Those are very secondary to God. So when you look at others, don't see yourself as above them. That's the cause of wars. And it, it really disappoints God. If you want to disappoint God, think of yourself above others. Don't help that person that needs help. Oh, don't go to that part of town because it's bad. You are not above others. You are a son or a daughter of that Christ made you just like they are. Pray for them. Don't look down on them. Pray for them. That is the most effective tool we could ever do. Thank you. One of the two greatest surprises in heaven will be that those who are there and those who are not there, not quite sure what he meant, but I could kind of gather in this particular portion of scripture, you know, Jesus is speaking about the essence of where we put our trust. Is it in ourself, in the accolades, or do we kind of put the cart before the horse? Do we trust in Jesus first and then follow it by our good works? You've heard me pray each and every Sunday about the gathering and J-Hop and our church here, I struggle with whether saying all of it, United Methodist will always be a, be a community church, will be a church, whether through the gathering or J-Hop. We pray for United Methodist, who 
been a part of for nearly 70 years, didn't leave the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church left me when they started to break away from the Bible. And, and really, they're running outside of the discipline currently. If you study the discipline, you realize that they don't, supposedly United Methodists are not to endorse homosexuality in the pulpit or um, same-sex attractions. And I don't know how much longer the United Methodist Church would allow us to exist because I'm, I'm sure they're aware of the fact that Jehovah's main mission in life is to help those who struggle with same-sex attractions. The Methodist Church doesn't necessarily look at same-sex attractions as, as, as wrong or any sexual attraction outside of marriage. And it's funny how traditionally we viewed any sexual attractions outside of marriage as traditionally wrong, experientially wrong. John Wesley said that we need to look at scripture first, tradition, reason, and experience. The parable we have now read is closely, closely connected with one which immediately precedes it in the last few Sundays studied the, the lectionary and scripture, the parable of the persevering widow who swept the house until she found the lost coin or the 99 safe sheep and the one black sheep. Persevering widow teaches the value of consistency in prayer and and praying at all times. In the parable of the Pharisee that we are examining today, and the publican teaches the spirit which should pervade the attitude, the spirit that should pre pervade our prayers. The first parable encourages us to pray and faint not, the widow's prayer. The second parable reminds us how and in what manner we ought to pray. Both should be often pondered by, by every true Christian, examining, allowing that to be the report card and the measuring kind of the thermometer of where we're at. Let us notice firstly the sin, the sin which our, our Lord Jesus Christ warns us in these verses. There's no difficulty in finding out this. St. Luke tells us very expressly and very implicitly that he spake, Jesus spake this parable unto a certain which trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others and that probably encompassed many of the, the public, the public that says, you know, I'm, I'm not all that bad. They always compare themselves with somebody who's less off than them. But it's always kind of a works, works righteousness based rather than a faith relationship basis in life. We are all naturally self-righteous. Self Luke tells us expressly that he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, themselves that they were righteous and they despised others that were playing that comparison game. The sin which our Lord denounces is self-righteousness. I remember the first sermon that I ever gave in a is entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? And it was three points. S stood for self, and I stood for I, and N stood for neglect. It seems like all sin encompasses self, interests, and neglect of sins committed or sins omitted in life. We are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family. It's an inherited disease, a family disease of all the children of Adam. Even the highest to the lowest, we think more highly of ourselves than, than we really ought to. 
We secretly flatter ourselves from pulpit to pew, flatter ourselves that we are not really as bad as some, and that we have something to recommend us to the favor of God. According to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, there's most of us, most of us will proclaim everyone our own goodness before we even go to the balance of things that are shortcoming. We forget the plain and very clear testimonies of Scripture that in many things we offend all. There is not a just person upon all earth that doeth good and, and sinneth not, according to James chapter 3, verse 2, and Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, or Job chapter 15, verse 14. There's not a just person upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And what is, what is the human? What is the human being that they should be clean, or, or they that are born of a woman that they should be righteous. The true cure, the true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. The cure of self-righteousness is self-knowledge. Once let the, once let the eyes of our understanding be, be opened by the Spirit and we shall talk no more of our own goodness. Once we let us see that there is something within our own hearts and what the holy law of God requires and, and self-conceit will die, we should lay our hand on our mouths and we shall cry with the leper, unclean, unclean, lost, lost. Let us notice, secondly, in these verses, the prayer of the Pharisee, the Pharisee, which our Lord condemns. We read that the Pharisee said, Lord God, I thank thee that I am not as others are, extortioners and unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give the tithes of all I possess. I heard once one of the greatest motivations of the rapist or an assaultant is that they want others to be impure, like they feel themselves as being impure. And I believe that's true also in the world of drugs and extortion and things that are happening crossing the borders. And the, the meth and the illegal drugs, and as I remind parents to be very, very, so very careful on they take their kids. We used to, we used to have to worry about needles and pins and razor blades. Now you got to worry about any form of drug that's intermingled with candy. It contains so, so much in our, our self-knowledge, our reflection, it, that one great defect stands out on the face of this prayer, a defect so glaring that even a child, even a child must mark it. It exhibits no sense of sin and no sense of shame and need. It contains no confession and no petition, no acknowledgement of guilt and emptiness, no supplication of mercy and grace. It is a mere boasting. It's a, it's a recital, a recital of fanciful merits and accompanied by uncharitable reflections in comparisons to others. A mere boasting, a recital of the fanciful merits accompanied by uncharitable reflections, reflections of self, on a brother or a sister sinner. It's this proud, high-minded profession, destitute, alike of penitence or humility and, and charity, 
In short, it, it hardly deserves to be called a prayer at all. No state of soul can be conceived so dangerous as that of the Pharisee. Never are a person's body in such a desperate plight as when mortification and insensibility sets in, when the unbelief of those who tried to listen to Noah and Noah said, prepare, prepare, for a flood is coming. Never are people's hearts in such a hopeless condition as, as when they are, are not sensible of their own, their own sin. The one that would not make shipwreck, shipwreck on the rock of Jesus must beware of measuring themselves by their, by their own neighbors. What does it signify that we are more moral than others? I imagine in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were saying, well, I wasn't doing as many tricks as so-and-so was doing. We are all vile and imperfect in the sight of God. If we contend with him, we, we cannot answer him with one in a thousand, according to Job 9, third verse. And let us remember this. In all our self-examination, let us not try ourselves by comparison with the standards of humans. Let us look at nothing but the requirements and the standards of God. He or the one that acts on this principle will never be a Pharisee. And let us know thirdly, thirdly in, in these verses, the, the prayer of the, the prayer of the publican, which, which our Lord commends. Jesus in the scripture commends, and I trust that you will experience this prayer in your life by radio or television, by a pew. That prayer was in, is in every respect the, the very opposite, the opposite of the Pharisee. We, we read that he stood afar off and smote upon his breast, breast and said, God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Can you say that with me today? God be merciful to me, a sinner. Our Lord himself stamps this shortest prayer with a seal of his probation. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The excellency of the public's prayer consists in five points, each of which deserves attention. For one thing, it was a real it was a real petition, a prayer which only contains thanksgiving and, and profession and asks nothing is essentially a defective prayer. It may be suitable for an angel, but this is not suitable for a sinner. For another thing, it was a, it was a very direct and a, a very personal prayer. Publican said, Publican said, did not speak of his neighbors, but he spoke of himself. Vagueness and generality are the great defects of most people's religions. To get out of we and, and to get out of our and us and I and my and me and, and just the opposite is happening in this crazy pronouns that we use and it's a great step towards heaven when we get out of the waste. For another thing, it was a humble prayer. It was a humble prayer. It was a prayer which puts self, self in the right place. Father, this morning as we bow in prayer and we realize how do we fit in this picture, the public can confess plainly that he was a sinner that this is the very ABC of saving Christianity. We never begin to be good till we can feel and say that we are bad. And for another thing, it was a prayer in which mercy, mercy was the chief thing desired and faith in God's covenant mercy, however weak displayed. Mercy is the first thing we must ask for 
in the day we begin to pray, mercy and grace must be the subject of our daily petitions at the throne of grace till the day we die. And finally, the Pupkin's prayer was one which came from his heart. He was deeply moved in uttering it. He smote upon his breast like one who felt more than he could express. Such prayers are the prayers which are God's delight. A broken and a contrite heart he will not despise according. Psalm 51, 17. And let these things sink down deep into our hearts. For the one that has learned to feel their sins has a great reason to be thankful. We are never in the way of salvation until we know that we are, we are lost. We are ruined. We are guilty and helpless. Happy indeed is the one who is not ashamed to sit by the side of the publican. That when our experiences tallies with his, we, we may hope that we have found a place in the school of God. And let us notice the high praise which our Lord bestows on humility. He says, everyone that exalteth himself shall be based, and the one that humbles himself shall be exalted. And the principle here laid down is so frequently found in the Bible that it ought to be deeply graven into our memories. Three times we find our Lord using the words before us in the Gospels, and on three distinct occasions. Humility, he would evidently impress upon us as among the first and foremost graces of the Christian character. It was a leading grace in Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and Job and Isaiah and Daniel. It was, it was to be a leading grace in all who profess to serve Christ. And all the Lord's people have not gifts or money, but all all may not be called to preach or write or fill a prominent place in the church, but all are called to humility. The grace of humility at least should adorn the, the poorest and most unlearned believer. That grace is humility. And as we leave this whole passage of scripture, which is a deep sense of the great encouragement it affords to all who feel the sins and cry to God for mercy in Christ's name. Their sins may have been many and great. Their prayers may seem weak, faltering, unconnected, and poor. But let them remember publicly and take courage. That same Jesus who commended his prayer is sitting at the right hand of God to receive, to receive sinners. May you pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. Saved by your grace. Help me to act that way and behave that way. In Jesus' name, amen. As the ushers come forward this morning and wait upon you for your tithes and offerings, let us turn to our offertory prayer printed in our bulletins. God of the universe, you were with us at the beginning of our lives and you will be by our side when we draw our last breath. In between, we struggle through life, too often trying to find our way based on our own wants and desires. In our giving to you this day, may you bless us so that we might better keep our eyes focused on you, that one day we might be able to echo your servant Paul as he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, we pray this in the name of Jesus, who loved us even to the cross. Amen. As the ushers come forward, let us turn to our offertory hymn, Just As I Am, Without One Plea, read hymnals number 260, to the honor and glory of the anniversaries of Mike and Clarice and Gary and Kathy Prout.
Nick stand for the doxology, please? Son, the Holy Spirit, as we offer our gifts to you this day, we pray that in our giving we may be reconnected to thy, thy reason why we follow and the reason why we give. You called us to be disciples, to make disciples, all knowing one and why we are following. Help us to avoid that which distracts the desire to hear the things that please us and make the road easier. But that will not bring us to the kingdom of justice and mercy and compassion you desire for us. In Christ's name we pray, our guiding light. Amen. Thank you. 